We have a baby dedication. We're going to do that right now before uh, the message. Uh, maybe we could bring lights up just a little bit during this time. So let's see. So where are you guys? Here we go. All right, let me do the introductions. Uh, first of all, Matt, are you? <laughs> this is a lot more difficult than I anticipated, yeah. brother. It's all right. Just tell me where to go. All right, this is the dad. This is Matt. This is the mom. This is Rhea. This is the sister. This is Nora. There, Nora? Okay, and this is the dedicating couple who are going to have a verse. This is Stevie and and Christy Oates, and uh, they're ch- and Matt plays electric guitar. This family serves really well in in this church. The whole family does, and they're they're delightful. So, well, what we do is we have a little gift for um, oh, and the and Jack who's. Uh-huh. Totally, really into this, isn't he? I can tell. And, and that's who we're dedicating, right? Jack Patrick Thompson. And we have a little New Testament gift from the church, and I'm going to let Big Sister hold that. You want to hold that? Okay. For Jack, that's his now, okay? All right, good. Okay, very good. Oh, okay, good, you have one. Right, that, that's good. And then... Uh, Christy and Stevie have a verse they're going to read. We pick a life verse, and I recommend that you write it in that Bible. We haven't done that yet because we don't know what the verse is. So here we go. Christy, you want to read that? The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will hide you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's a great choice. I love that verse. Jack is inspired too. All right. <laughs> Did you have a verse too you wanted to read? Okay, here we go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Amen. That is a great <laughs> verse. Very well done. All right. So I'm going to set that down. And uh, all right, come here, sleepy boy. All right, let's pray for this little boy. Lord God Almighty and Everlasting Father, we lift up to you Jack, Jack Patrick Thompson. We thank you for his birth, for the life that you've given him, breathed into him. Thank you for giving him such good parents who love him. Thank you for giving him a big sister who loves him and a church that loves him. Lord God Almighty, I pray that you'll give his parents wisdom in raising this child up in you. Thank you, Lord God, for the plans that you have for him, good plans, plans uh, that will honor you and bless him. I pray you will bless others through this child as well as he grows up. We thank you, Lord God, for all the children, but especially today for little Jack. In Jesus' name, amen. He's a big boy. <laughs> okay, we'll let you guys head back to your places. Let's see if I can get this done.
It's fun doing baby dedications. It's one of my favorite things to do, really. The baby dedications, the baptisms, it's such a fun part of, uh, of the ministry that we do here. Now, all parents know about something that we would call tough love, right? Tough love means telling people the truth they may not want to hear, but they really need to hear. Tough love can seem harsh, and it is harsh, if there's no love beneath the truth. All parents know that children sometimes need tender, loving, caresses, reassuring words of encouragement. And all parents should also know that sometimes, sometimes children need the truth in the form of a stern warning. Hebrews 5.11 through chapter 6, verse uh, 13, we get a big dose of what I would call tough love. The author of Hebrews turns fairly suddenly from deep theological truth that's encouraging and uplifting, the truth about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who has become our high priest, and, and all of that. That's what we've been on the last couple of weeks. And then he turns to a stern, tough love warning. So, I'm going to go to the passage. The text today is Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12. Be, be warned, it's a tough love kind of passage. Straight from God's heart to ours. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. I told you. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Let us, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God, instructions about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. <coughs> In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things, in your case, things that accompany salvation. 
God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now, this is a tough passage. It's been a struggle all week working through this passage because at the very center of the text is a dire warning for those tempted to completely turn away from Christ. The implication seems to be that remaining immature, not growing on in the faith, puts one at risk of falling away from Christ altogether. The warning comes in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which appears to be the possibility that though once saved, you can lose your salvation. Can an authentic Christ follower turn away from God to the point of suffering the eternal consequence of losing salvation? It's a hard question. First, let's consider what it means, as this author is telling us about falling away. There's two key words, I think, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which is the center of the passage, what I want to focus on first. Two key words. One is the word translated fall away in verse 6. It is the Greek word peripipto, which means to fall aside, or in this text, it means apostatize. Renounce one's faith. Deliberately declare, I no longer believe in Jesus Christ. It's the one who said, I did believe, I once followed, but not anymore. And I want everybody to know it, I'm done. I'm done with God, I'm done with Jesus. I'm now an atheist, I'm now an agnostic. I don't believe anymore. Can someone truly believe in and follow Christ and then turn around and reject him? How can someone be enlightened, taste the heavenly gift, share in the Holy Spirit, taste of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then turn their backs on Him? Can that really happen? And if we take this text at face value, the answer is yes. F.F. Bruce, New Testament scholar, he writes about this passage, God has pledged himself to pardon all who truly repent. But scripture and experience alike suggest that it is possible for human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life where they can no longer repent. I mean, if the the whole means to salvation is humbly confessing before the living God and receiving his grace, if we refuse that, then what? And what exactly is the apostate doing? It seems more serious, according to the author of Hebrews. In verse 6, he says that that person who once followed and claimed Christ, now rejects him publicly, is essentially doing two things. Crucifying the Son of God all over again. That's strong. It's far more serious than merely saying, well, I used to believe, but I don't believe anymore. No big deal. Well, evidently, before God, it is a big deal. It's the person who aligns themselves 
with Christ, realigning themselves with those who crucify Christ. And so crucify him again. Now, keep in mind here, Christ died, he was crucified, on behalf of all of us. So it is all of our sin that put him on the cross. You can't just blame the Romans who drove the nails or the Jewish religious leaders who uh, advocated for his death. But when it happens, as it's described in the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those who crucified Christ, what the, the reason they did it initially, the actual, literal, on-the-spot reason, was Jesus claimed to be divinity. He claimed to be God. He claimed to have the power to forgive sin. He made this claim, and so therefore, he was crucified. And for the one who once followed and then turns away, is declaring that that crucifixion doesn't mean anything to them anymore. And then the other phrase is subjecting him, Christ, to public disgrace. It's to make a public example of him again, to, to, to put him open to ridicule and shame, make a show of it all. Raymond Brown, another New Testament scholar, he says, we're not here dealing with the sincere believer who's depressed about his spiritual failure or the backslider who's temporarily lost interest in the things of God. We are here confronted with fierce opposition to Christ and his gospel and a determination to bring Christ's work to end and end. To those considering apostasy, to those who might consider turning away from Christ, the writer of Hebrews asks, are you sure that's what you want to do? You want to crucify Jesus again? Proclaim that that crucifixion is a meaningless thing. Do you want to public shame him again? Well, it's kind of a big deal, at least in the eyes of this author and in the eyes of God. Now, if the first word is fall away, which is actually in verse 6, we back up to verse 4 and to see the other key word in this passage, and that would be the word translated impossible. Now, this, I find this passage very, very disturbing. Who was that? Someone, maybe Tim Keller, I don't remember for sure, who said, if, if what you read in the Bible doesn't disturb you, if God doesn't, doesn't mess with you some, then you're probably not really seeking the, the real God because there's going to be things you don't understand. This is one of those I don't really understand because I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe that those I know and that I love and even those I don't know who openly renounce Christ or beyond saving can never turn back to Christ. I don't want to believe that. And yet, adunatas is the first word of verse 4 in the Greek text translated impossible as in if they fall away it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance not difficult not unlikely impossible is the openly apostate person the one who denies Christ openly beyond the reach of the gospel well, that's a hard theological question. It's difficult. And I'm not 
I'm not here to tell you I know the answer. I don't. I'm struggling with it myself. I don't claim to have the final answer. Because there are things in the New Testament that we've got to hold in tension. And this is one. Because on the one hand, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, it's impossible for those who fall away to come back to Christ. Impossible. On the other hand, Jesus says in John 10, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So, the question changes just a little bit to do sincere believers lose their faith, lose their salvation, or do true believers always and forever persevere in Christ? Does hardship and suffering destroy faith or reveal it? Whether it was actually true and authentic or not. John Calvin is at the center of this big controversy. He's been going on in the church for, well, at least 500 years and more than that. And, and Calvin writes some things that I think are really helpful here. One of them is this. He says there is a twofold falling away, two different ways that looks like. There is the falling into general sin, as all believers do, and struggle against. I mean, we're all going to have doubts sometimes. We're all going to struggle with it. We're all going to kind of fall away in a sense temporarily. And then he says there's total defection, entirely renouncing God's grace. When anyone rises up after falling, we may hence conclude, Calvin writes, that he had not been guilty of defection, however grievous, grievously he may have sinned. F.F. F. Bruce, again, those who repudiate the salvation procured by Christ will find none anywhere else. So can a baptized believer become a non-believer? Well, my wife, the licensed professional counselor, would say, it's best to focus on what you control, not what you do not control. And in the case of this text, we've got to accept the tension in the New Testament between this idea of eternal security that I can rest, we can rest secure in, in the grace and mercy of God by faith in Christ. And the possibility of apostasy. We can't control that. We have to hold that in tension. We have to accept that. But what do we control? Well, the rest of this passage is about what we control. That is our response to the tough love of God revealed in chapter 5, 11 through 6, 12. That tough love can be summed up in the admonition, grow up, grow up in Christ. Stop being a baby. That's what he's kind of saying. I know, it stings. But how do we respond to that? Well, it, it, it seems to me there are at least five ways we see in this text uh, uh, to how we can grow up in Christ, grow on in that faith. And I'm, I'm going to run through them quickly. Number one, learn the basic fundamentals of the faith. 
He says that in verses six through uh, six one through three. He actually kind of assumes they have that. The author of Hebrews describes these fundamentals as the elementary teachings about Christ, repentance from acts of that lead to death, a faith in God, instruction of baptism, laying on of the hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Those basic things and an excellent tool for learning the basics is something that I quote and talk about quite a lot, the New City Catechism. A catechism is a question and answer way of learning the basics about the faith. And the New City Catechism is a new one. It's 52 questions and answers. It focuses on the Ten Commandments, on the Lord's Prayer, on the Apostles' Creed. It's a great way to learn these basic fundamentals of what it is that we Christians believe. So use it. It's online. You can get to it easily. Teach your children. And and Tim Keller, who put this together, has this great metaphor of why we teach our children these things. You see, he compares it to a fireplace. In order for there to be fire in a fireplace, there's got to be two things. Wood got to be wood to burn. No wood in the fireplace. It's not going to be a fire. But once there's wood in the fireplace, then there has to be a spark that's going to light it. Keller says the New City Catechism, or just learning the basics of the faith, is like putting the wood in the fireplace. And that's what we do with our children. We teach them what it is that we Christians believe. It's our responsibility. You put wood in the fireplace, but you don't have the power to light a spark. That has to be the Holy Spirit. So there's not a guarantee when you put wood in the fireplace, the Word of God into the hearts of our children, that it's going to spark into an authentic faith in the living God. That's up to the Spirit. But here's, what, here's the opposite of that. If you don't put any wood in there, there's certainly not going to be a fire. So we do what we are supposed to do and then trust God. Learn the fundamentals of the faith. Teach those fundamentals of the faith to our children. Number two, we keep on learning. He says, oh, this kind of stings. You're slow to learn. Literally, that Greek text says you're hard of hearing. You're not receptive to God's Word. So there is never a time when our spiritual education and growth is complete, where we're done. Spiritual growth requires the same health regimen as, or a similar one, as physical growth. And a key factor in a child's physical growth, whether it's Jack or Nora or, or any of the kids, is healthy food, right? They need parents who are going to give them healthy food. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, you've got to feast on the word of God, not starve yourself and wonder why you're not growing in Christ. <clears throat> Keep on learning. Keep pouring the Word of God, into your soul, into your heart and mind. Number three, keep on working, loving, serving. Verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. So it's an active kind of living out that faith. Spiritual health requires the right food, a good diet, and it also requires exercise. So the practice of spiritual disciplines, 
the disciplines of serving and loving our neighbor, saying no to our flesh that builds up spiritual strength. So when you engaged in that working out of your, your, your salvation, of loving and serving, you can stop fretting over whether or not your faith is authentic and just live like it is, and it will be. Number four, be diligent. Verses 11 and 12. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy. So we persevere. Sure, we're going to stumble, we're going to struggle, we might even seem to be defeated at times, but we always rise up in the power of the Spirit of the risen Lord and continue on in faith and hope and love. We're diligent. And then finally, number five, and it's a big one. Imitate great faith role models. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. We need mentors in, in the faith. That's a, that's a major factor in our spiritual growth. And it seems to me that there are three kinds of mentors that are very helpful. At least these, it's the way I try to live this out. It, it, that's helpful. First, your first and foremost best mentor, well, that would be Christ himself. And that would be those in the Scripture that we read about. A part of the intake of Scripture is to find those kinds of mentors in the Scripture. The foremost, of course, being Christ himself, who is the only perfect role model, full of both truth and grace. But we need more than that. So I have some other mentors in my life who write books for me to read. I've never met any of them personally. But when I read Tim Keller, when I read uh, Eugene Peterson, when I read, uh, there's a a few others, a lot of them I quote to you, I consider them like my mentors. Some of them aren't even alive anymore. Eugene Peterson died a couple of years ago. I still think of him as the kind of pastor I want to be. So I read what he he writes about being a pastor and about spiritual things. So he's, he's kind of a mentor. I'll never have a cup of coffee with him, and I'm okay with that. But I learn from him, and I follow that pattern that he has set. And then, so, so you, you need some mentors like that, some people you read. And then finally, you need people with skin on. You, you need people around you. If not a mentor, a brother or sister in Christ. I know our women's ministry just launched a new, uh, what's it called, sister to, sister, what? Sister, a prayer sister kind, kind of thing. And that's a great idea because it's a means through which women in the church not only just get to know each other but kind of mentor each other. It doesn't matter who's older, who's younger. None of that really matters all that much. What matters is that someone prays for you, encourages the best in you, and you do that for them. So we need those kind of... That's one reason we do small groups around here. What we want to make room for is real friendships to develop that are spiritual. So we imitate great faith role models. We're diligent. We keep working, loving, serving. Keep on learning. We learn the fundamentals of the faith. We can control. We have input in that. 
it works kind of like this. Um, I don't remember which church father said this, whether it was Augustine or another, who said, work at your faith as if everything depends on you. Pray as though everything depends on God, because it does. So, if you're looking for a job, knock on the door. Seek Him. Fill out the job applications. Work at it. And then pray for God to open the door. And that applies to all kinds of things in life. And I love, I mean, for me, my favorite verse here in this text is verse 9. I'm so glad the author dropped this in to a very difficult passage. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. (laughs) That's comforting. The author assures his readers he expects, believes, is in fact confident they won't fall away. A sure sign that this is tough love is that he refers to his readers as agape toy, dear friends, or beloved, as he urges them and urges us, grow up in the faith. Grow up in Christ. Now, back to what appears to be impossible. I want to end with us remembering the story of that rich young ruler. Do you remember that? It's this young man who who comes to Jesus and he's asking what he must do to get eternal life. And Jesus responds, obey the commandments. Well, I've, I've kept them all, the young man says. What do I still lack? And then Jesus says, well, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, you have treasures in heaven, come follow me. And when the man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that would be what? Impossible. That's impossible, which was the point of him saying it. And when the disciples heard this, they're greatly astonished, says in Matthew, and and they ask, well, then who can be saved? Because they're still working on this theological assumption that more money meant more blessing and more approval of God. Jesus kind of blows that up, but they're still working on that. And then Jesus responds, with man, this is impossible. Adunatas. Same word that we find in Hebrews 6. But with God, all things are possible. Dunatas. Do you know somebody who's turned away from Christ? I do. I know a few. Do you know somebody who's turned away and then pretty much openly denied him, declared themselves an atheist, agnostic? I do. And I love them. And I pray for them. Because it's not our place to judge. It's our place to pray. And in our prayer, 
we remember with God all things are possible. So how do we hold that intention? It's challenging. I don't have the exact answer. But I don't know what's in the heart of another person. God does. And I will continue to pray. And I hope you will too. That God, who can do the do anything, He can turn back one who's fallen away. Let's pray. And I want you to think of that person that you know who has turned away. Lift them up to God. Lord God Almighty, Everlasting Father, this is a difficult passage. It's tough love. It stings a little bit when we think about, my goodness, am I still a baby in the faith? And in some respects, probably so. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would move in us and through us, stimulate us to grow on and grow up in our faith in the ways that you instruct in this passage and others. And Lord God, I pray for several specific people who come to my mind who once claimed Christ and then openly turned away. And I pray you'll do the impossible. I pray, Lord God, that your grace would prevail. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. Okay. Actually, I, I really love that song. I love the joy of it. Did you guys have a good time at Quest? Yeah, all right, good. Okay. I have a big homework assignment for you uh, today, a challenging one, most challenging in a while. Don't be a baby. We just... <laughs> I want to encourage you to consider Lent. Lent begins on Wednesday. Lent is a season of reflection, preparation for the celebration of Easter. It's a way to focus on the cross before we get to the resurrection. I think we evangelicals do resurrection really well. Cross, eh, not quite as well. And we need to stop, reflect on that cross. So, uh, Lent is a way to practice saying no to the flesh, and yes to God. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In what ways do you deny yourself? Well, you can, you can get some practice at Lent. So choose something significant to give up for 40 days from this Wednesday to Easter. 40 days, give something up, something you like, something that might challenge you a, a little bit. But it doesn't end there. It is also a challenge to add a new spiritual discipline to your life for that 40 days. So say no to the flesh, take something away, and add another dimension of your spiritual life. Let me tell you how it's going to work out for, for me. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I was really nervous about telling you because, you know, you hate to fail and look stupid. But 
I like to have a glass of red wine in the evening. My last glass for 40 days will be Tuesday night. And then for 40 days, I'll, I'll have none. Not, you know, that's not earth-shattering by any means. But the other element of that is that in my own spiritual walk, mornings tend to be very, very good for me. I read my, the scripture and write in my prayer journal almost every morning. It's a very good time. Evenings, well, I'm lazy. I'd rather just watch TV till I can't hold my head up and, and I'll have my wife drag me to the bed. And yeah, I, I, more, Evenings are not great, spiritually speaking, for me. And I would like that to change. And I want to use Lent to practice that. So I'm going to give up the glass of wine and add a, 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 a time of seeking God, of prayer, of scripture reading in the evening. It's not going to be like two hours long, but I'm hoping to establish this discipline in the evening that carries on. So that's what I'll be wrestling with. You know, and if you miss a day, well, okay. Pick it up again the next next day. So I want to encourage you to consider that. If you need more information on Lent, just Google it. You know, it's been around forever. Uh, and different churches practice it. Some do, some don't. But I'd like you to experiment a little bit with, with that in order to produce spiritual growth in your life. All right. After the blessing, we'll have some folks in the front who can pray with you or for you. We invite you to come receive prayer if you you need that today. Here's the blessing. May you continue to grow in faith, hope, love in Christ our Lord. Amen.